the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be doing a, uh, a little mini-sermon series here out of the Gospel of Matthew and looking at the Christmas story through his uh, telling of it. And today we're going to start that in chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 through 17. Let's pray together as we start our time. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, Lord, we, we do ask, Lord, that our time here together would be an offering to you. Lord, that uh, of everything that we, um, that we think and everything that our heart leads us to would point to the glory of Jesus. Lord, that you would help us to more closely cling ourselves to him today because of what Matthew wrote about him so long ago. Lord, it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Well, on December 9th, 1965, there was a cultural phenomenon that was released that's cherished even to today. For the first 35 years that it was aired, it was aired on CBS, and for the last 17 years it has run on ABC, and it's easily recognized by its jazzy soundtrack. It's regarded as a wholesome classic of a time gone by. What am I talking about? A Charlie Brown Christmas. Yeah, as beloved as a Charlie Brown Christmas is, it almost didn't happen. Um, and it wasn't because it was Charles Schultz's first attempt at transferring over his, his uh, comic strip onto the screen. It wasn't because there wasn't funding for the project, and it wasn't because he didn't have a, a team of support behind him to get it done. Rather, it was because uh, he, the CBS executives, the show's director, and even the voice of Snoopy, and there's a guy that actually made those sounds of Snoopy, they, uh, they objected to the most crucial scene in the entire show. It is the scene in which Charlie Brown's frustration about the meaning of Christmas boils over and Linus provides the voice of reason by dropping his, uh, his, his security blanket on the ground and going up to center stage and reciting Luke chapter 2 from the Bible. The problem, these people believed, that any reference to the Bible in such a show like a Charlie Brown would make the ratings absolutely plummet. It would be, it would be a flop. The people wouldn't, wouldn't identify with it. And in fact, a National Review article by Lee Habib said this about what transpired during the production. The executives did not want to have Linus reciting the story of the birth of Christ from the Gospel of Luke. The network orthodoxy of that time assumed that believers would not want to sit through passages of the King James Bible. There was a standoff of sorts, but Schultz did not back down. Because of, the, uh, because of the tight production schedule and CBS's prior promotion, the network executives aired the special as Schultz intended it, but they were certain that they had a flop on their hands. They were freaking out about something over, overly religious in a Christmas special, explained Bill Melendez, who was the voice of Snoopy. They basically wrote it off like, hey, this just isn't going to be interesting to anyone, and it's just like it's just going to end up being a big tax write-off. Melendez himself was somewhat hesitant about the reading from Luke. I was very leery of the religion that came into it, and I was right away opposed to it. 
But Sparky, which was Charles Schultz's nickname, just assumed that what he had to say was important to somebody, which is why Charles Schultz was Charles Schultz. He knew that the Luke reading by Linus was the heart and the soul of the story. You see, what CBS executives didn't understand, what the director and the voiceover for Snoopy didn't understand, is that human beings connect with meaning. Human beings connect, then they gravitate towards purpose. And in the midst of the craziness that is the Christmas season, many of us grow weary and long to see the point of it all. And so Charles Schultz's answer was the only thing that can bring any sort of sanity during a season that is crazy, and he did it through the mouth of Linus. That the true meaning of Christmas, the purpose of, of all of this, by the way, decorating committee, great job uh, getting this together. The purpose of all this is because God Almighty became flesh in the form of a baby, and this baby's story is unlike any story that you and I would ever read. It's a story that is firstly true. This isn't a fable. This isn't make-believe. It's a story of love. It is a story in which the hero, the, the baby hero, would grow up and not just rescue you and I from the bad guy, but would also identify with our every weakness, our every hurt, our every temptation, our every suffering, and through his death, his death and resurrection can comfort us in every sorrow. Why do you think you and I are so drawn into fairy tales? It's because in the midst of all of our sin and all of our issues, God has hardwired us to delight in stories that resemble his story of redemption. And at Christmas time, the true fairy tale of the gospel comes true. And it's commenced. It is the once upon a time sort of beginning that we perk up to. And it is this story of the gospel that we find echoes of in our own story. And in it, we find true acceptance we find true rest, and we find true hope. This is the reason why you will hear songs sung about Jesus on secular radio at Christmas time without so much as a blush. This is why a Charlie Brown Christmas is still so wildly popular today. People are meant for a purpose. And our story, strangely though it's a genealogy, we find here purpose and meaning in the story of a baby. So if you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 1, I invite you to read along in verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. 
Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So it might not appear so, but your life is bound up in this seemingly boring list of names. And if we want to see how an unlikely Christmas story comes together through an unlikely lineage and transferred into our heart, the first thing that we must do is we must find true acceptance in Jesus. We must find true acceptance in Jesus. You know, when you meet someone for the first time and um, you're trying to get to know them, chances are you are probably going to talk yourself up a bit. No, I don't mean lying, and I don't mean exaggerating about, you know, maybe your life. But what I mean is that when you first meet someone, you're probably not going to lay out in front of them all your baggage. You, uh, you're more than likely going to tell, you're not going to tell them about your medical issues. You're probably not going to tell them about your financial stresses, your emotional hurts, your relational, your family uh, strife. You are instead most likely going to talk about your, your good aspects, you're going to tell them about your accomplishments. You are going to tell them about your values and your likes and, and, and your dislikes. You might share those, those other things later on down the road as you get to know them a bit more. But initially, there's no way of dreaming that you would share those, uh, those things about you that you don't want to put on display. The same as if you're applying for a job. If you have a resume together... Who in the world would put on their resume that they bombed something in, in college or that they screwed something up at a job one time? Instead, they're going to put their education, their occupational history, and their references. By the way, their references will also talk them up as well. We want to put our best stuff on display so that we can look the best and the most competent and worthy of whatever it is that we are trying to, to get so whether it's meeting someone for the first time or filling out a job application, it seems natural for you and I to put our best foot forward because we're trying to make an impression. And why is that? It's because you and I are afraid 
that if we exposed some of those things about us, that perhaps that company or perhaps that person or the, or the love interest or the, the business connection that we're trying to make would look at us in a way that we don't desire them to look at us. And if they do, maybe they're going to reject us. So we live our lives in fear that if people got to know the true me, well, then they wouldn't want much to do with me. When we look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, <clears throat> we find a resume <clears throat> that would not even make the first cut of a search committee for a Savior. And it has less to do with Jesus' failings and shortcomings because Jesus didn't have any failings and shortcomings. Rather, it has to do with Jesus' pedigree, the family that he comes from. Now, I, I grew up in South Minneapolis, and so that it's, it's much more populated than this area here. And even in South Minneapolis, there are some families that are absolutely legendary. I have another word to use for some of these families is maybe infamous. There are things about them from generation to generation that they've just been known for various things, attitudes or behaviors or whatever they are. And as I've lived in a small town now for the past eight years, I've realized that in a small town, it's almost more exaggerated. There are some people that have been around long enough to tell stories about great-grandparents and how people that are here in town today are the way they are because of where they've come from. And here in Jesus' genealogy, we should see not a list of heroes of the faith. Rather, we should see people of ill repute, sketchy backgrounds, and broken lives. Now, I don't want to sound pig-headed here, but it's very significant that there are women that are listed in this genealogy. It is significant because genealogies were a big deal to prove pedigree. They also served as sort of a legal record for land disputes and other disputes within the law. And so, uh, rarely, if ever, do women appear on these lists. But prior to Christianity, women had no legal rights. Any testimony that they would give would be discredited and such a list of, of them being included would be of no help. But notice that Matthew includes in verse 5 a woman named Rahab. And this is indeed the Rahab from the book of Joshua. And you might be wondering, well, how in the world did Rahab get into this spot? Because if you know the storyline of Scripture, you know that Rahab is many, 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 many generations beyond that of Boaz. But yet it says here that Boaz came from Rahab. We'll get to that here in the next point, but for now it is important to know that this woman, Rahab, is included in, in Jesus' genealogy. And why is that significant? It's because Rahab was a prostitute. She sold her body for sex. True, she ended up believing in the one true and living God, Yahweh of the Israelites, yet this is the very background but from which she comes from. If there was an unlikely person to be in the lineage of Jesus Christ, 
it is this prostitute found in verse 5. And looking back a few verses, he mentions a woman named Tamar. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah, who was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And what's significant about Tamar is that she pretended to be a prostitute in order to seduce her father-in-law to father the children that she could not get from his sons. By the way, Judah's story is no picnic either. You can read about that in Genesis 38. And it's interesting in verse 6 that it says, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now this is referring to Bathsheba, who David committed adultery with, uh, got her pregnant, ordered the murder of her husband so that he could cover up his affair. But I don't think that Matthew omits Bathsheba's name in order to point the finger at her. Rather, he transitions here to point the finger at David. So not only here is is Matthew pointing out that there are some shady women in Jesus' family line, but the men in Jesus' family line, well, they don't fall too far behind, may uh, may even go beyond the women. David would be one that we should look to as the pillar. Here is King David, yet of this list, he is only written in the record as fathering Solomon through somebody else's wife. So here, you may try to look to Abraham, the father of the faith, of really three major religions in the world. And yes, uh, here's a guy that disbelieved God many times. Here is a guy who was willing to deceive rulers and kings by saying that his wife was actually his sister and allowing them to take her as their wife just to save his own skin. He does this not once but twice in the record. There's not enough time here to talk about Jacob who was a scoundrel and a cheat, and a list of all the kings that proceeded from David that were wicked in themselves. Excuse me. So when we look at this list of people, we see people with all sorts of issues, some of which we can identify and some which we can't even imagine doing these things. But yet we see that these were the very people that God chose to carry the seed by which would bring about Jesus, the Son of God, our Savior, to save people like them and like us. And because God was pleased to use such people of ill repute to bring about his ultimate purpose, we must see that in Jesus we can find true acceptance in Him. It does not matter whether you have a promiscuous background. It does not matter if you have a past in drugs, a present in alcohol. It doesn't matter if you've been abused and feel the shame. It does not matter. Uh, Those things don't matter for Jesus to accept you. It does not matter if you bear the emotional scars of a difficult life. It doesn't matter if you've made shipwreck of your life. First uh, John chapter 1, verse 12 says, <clears throat> To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
And if that is true, that when we enter in to the family of God in Jesus, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, regardless of our past. The point of this genealogy is to understand that because Jesus has a messed up pedigree, because he has a tainted background, he can accept us for who we are and will change us into the kind of people that he wants us to be. You won't understand the point of Christianity until you first realize that Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother was a whore. You will not understand Christianity until you understand that the blood of murderers and adulterers flowed through his veins. And it is from those veins that his blood was spilled out to bring us redemption, to bring us hope, to be forgiven, to be renewed, and to find acceptance in him alone. So we ought to first find our true acceptance in Jesus. But second, we need to find our true rest in Jesus. Find your true rest in Jesus. When we think about the idea of rest, we typically tend to think of um, physical rest. You know, I think of at this time of year, I think of Twas the Night Before Christmas. You think about that line, um, and I was a mon, her, her kerchief, and I and my calf, cap had just settled down for a what? Long winter's nap. That's what we tend to think of when we think of resting. But a biblical understanding of rest has little to do with, with physical rest. It has little to do with a respite from life. Rather, biblical rest is a contentment of soul. It is uh, a soul that can be confident and unafraid, though the world around us give way. Instead of relating to "Twas the night before Christmas, this rest, this shalom rest, is more like the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And unless we're paying attention very, very carefully, we'll totally miss what Matthew is writing here, pointing us to the source of true biblical rest in Jesus alone. Look at me in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So how does this express true rest, this shalom rest? Well, it does so through numbering. Matthew is very, very, um, uh, he's very, very keen to make sure that these generations are in multiples of seven. And in order to do that, Matthew must skip a few generations. This is not something that was uncommon. In fact, in, in, in ancient uh, Israel, they would commonly skip out people and generations in order to ease memory, to prove the point, the legal point that they're trying to make, and for, for many other things. And so here, he, uh, he shortens the genealogy and places each section in, in divisions of 14. Now, this may sound totally far-fetched to our Western ears, but to a Jew around Jesus' time, this would make perfect sense. If you do the, the calculations correctly... 
<coughs> you'll see that 14 plus 14 plus 14 equals 42. 42 are six sevens. Okay, that's important. Jesus' birth then starts the beginning of the seventh seven. So that is significant because in Genesis, in the creation account, we know that on the seventh day that God rested from his creative works. And then from that, it is spilled out as a mandate to his people to have that rest in many different ways. We think of the Sabbath day to keep it holy, to have a day of rest, but also it goes to agriculture too. In Old Testament law, every seven years, you were not allowed to plant. You had to let the land lay fallow so that the nutrients and everything in the ground could be replenished, and then in the next year, you could have a, uh, a, a better crop and a better farming year. And uh, in Leviticus 25, God instructs people that, of, that at the seventh cycle of seven Sabbath, Sabbath years, which would basically be the 49th year, that was to be called the year of Jubilee. And a year of Jubilee was a year that all debts were forgiven. All slaves were to be freed. The land and the people were to enjoy life without the weariness of burdens and a foretaste of the rest that God will give them. And in this genealogy, Matthew is telling us that that rest is now available in Jesus. He is the beginning of the seventh seven. In Christ alone, can we have our weary consciences eased because he has taken them upon himself in his death, burial, and resurrection. In Jesus alone, our guilt and our shame are redeemed and our stories can be used for good. In Jesus alone, we can have our brokenness mended, our mourning hearts comforted, our fears eased. We can let go of our tight grip on our future and our reality and let God give us the future that he has promised, that he will right every wrong, wipe every tear from every eye, and that one day sin and sadness will be no more. At Christmas, Jesus came to give you perfect and full rest. Will you trust him to give you that? Finally, third, find true hope in Jesus. Find true hope in Jesus. Look with me in verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 1. <clears throat> the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So this verse not only provides the framework by which he's going to lay out his, his genealogy here, but also there's something special about the characters of Abraham and David together this early in Matthew's gospel. And both of these have to do with the fact that God gave his greatest promises that he gave to anyone in Abraham and in David. In Abraham, we see that in spite of all of his sins, in spite of all of his failures, God gave him the promise that all the nations would be blessed through him, that those who bless Abraham, God would bless. Those who curse Abraham, God would curse. 
And in Jesus, the seed of Abraham has come to full fruition. We see how in, the, in Christ, the nations throughout history have been immensely blessed by Jesus through the work of his people, not to mention his saving work. We see how many people have been blessed by trusting in him for salvation. Conversely, we see how many have been cursed eternally for rejecting Jesus. In David, God gave the promise in 2 Samuel 7 that the throne of Israel would never be without one of David's descendants. And in Christ, not only does Jesus claim the right to the throne of David and Israel, but, he rather, but also Jesus claims the throne of the universe. So much so that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, tells us that in him all things hold together. And that tells us that his kingly rule is so sovereign that not one particle, particle, not one molecule, that's where I was going with that, one molecule, one particle can do anything without Jesus' permission. If in Jesus God's greatest promises are fulfilled, then how can we not go to him and, and can we not trust Jesus in all of the brokenness of our lives? How can we not find hope in the one who holds the world in his very hands? How can we not go to him when our hearts are heavy and when we need help? How can we neglect such a great salvation, a rescue from ourselves, and everything that is evil in the world? There is great hope that is found in Jesus laying in a feeding trough. He is the one who would grow to be a mighty Savior, a Redeemer, Comforter, friend, king, and greatest hope that we could ever imagine. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Network executives may never understand the magic of a Peanuts Christmas, but to anyone who has lived in real life and brokenness, this, is a show, uh, this, this show is a breath of fresh air, not because of the lovable characters and the plot line, because, but because it points to the true need in every single human heart, the need for acceptance, the need for rest, and the need for hope. And this Christmas, realize that you have been hardwired to see all of those things freely given to you in the person of Jesus Christ. Will you trust in him today? Will you find your acceptance, your rest, and your ultimate hope in Him alone? Let's pray together.